So tonight I want to talk about the, the unity of emptiness and compassion. And um, we've been talking a lot about the, the quality of awareness or of mind, to use Guy's way of talking about mind uh, as a naturally knowing nature, natural knowing and the sense of uh, naturally awake and also being empty of any intrinsic lasting self-existence. Another way of talking about that emptiness is anatta or not-self, which we've been alluding to talking about all along in the way that um, we point to how mindfulness simply notices whatever arises. Whatever arises also passes is not, as the Buddha said, fit to be considered me or mine. Or another way we've talked about it, a phrase I often use is, awareness doesn't care. Now those aspects, that way of talking about the nature of mind or emptiness or not self, can sometimes um, not be so appealing to people. It's a kind of way that sometimes there can be a reaction of, well, what is this, if awareness doesn't care, it's just some kind of cold, gray, void of emptiness or a sense almost of uh, an alienating kind of experience. If awareness doesn't care, what's the point of being aware of everything to get to the point where you don't care about anything? Is that what um, the culmination of our Buddhist practice is about? Of course, no. But sometimes this, um, like an incomplete understanding of emptiness of not-self, can seem that that is really a deep understanding. And we can have deep insights into emptiness, into the uh, no intrinsic, lasting self-existence of anything, or the um, ephemeral nature of all the sense experiences. Nothing happening, as Guy was saying last night, but the six sense experiences over and over and over and over. After a while, it's like it doesn't really matter which one's happening. They're all just coming and going. Saito Upandita said to me once, I must have been complaining, and he said, so what do you want, different objects to note? You know? <laughs> Basically, it doesn't matter. So on that level, that's an incomplete understanding of emptiness because the third aspect of the nature of mind, the nature of knowing, is that it's the Pure heart-mind in a moment is also, as the Tibetans say, ceaselessly responsive. That in a moment of wisdom, the pure mind and heart, when confronted with the need to respond, the natural expression is either compassion, if it's in the face of suffering, metta, if it's just a sense of connection, mudita, if it's joy, equanimity, if it's uh, something that there's nothing one can do about, or just calm, just wisdom. But it's actually not uncommon to uh, what Nyoshal Ken called falling into emptiness, where we can intellectually or even experientially have a deep uh, understanding or experience of not-self, of emptiness, of the sense of awareness doesn't care, and think that's the whole picture. And that's really, um, I just want to read this from Nyoshal Kempo, who was a really wonderful Tibetan master. He's talking about, the danger is that we hear too much too soon. We think we have understood shunyata, emptiness. We err on the side of the absolute in a nihilistic fashion and are obscured by concepts. And this is really easy, the experience of no intrinsic self-existence can so easily slide into a very subtle conceptual overlay about it. And we think it's still the experience, but it's thinking about it. And that's very different. Nagarjuna, this is Kempo again, Nagarjuna said, it is sad to see those who mistakenly believe in material concrete reality, but far more pitiful are those who believe in emptiness. Those who believe in things can be helped through various kinds of practice, through the ways of skillful means. 
But those who have fallen into the abyss of emptiness find it almost impossible to reemerge since there seem to be no handholds, no steps, no gradual progression, and nothing to do. Just very subtle, but also we can quite fall in. Or as Nagarjuna said in Stephen Batchelor's translation, Buddhas say emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. (laughs) The difference between belief and our actual experience of what's so fascinating is how subtle that difference can be. So this is what we would call falling into emptiness and not a complete picture. But this third aspect, is ceaselessly responsive, which is usually described as compassion, connection, tenderness for beings, an appropriate response, is really the necessary, well, they go together, compassion and emptiness. One without the other is not a, a holistic, is not a whole understanding. We're not, uh, they have to really support one another. And I think it's pretty Well, to me, it's easy intellectually to understand how the experience, the understanding of either emptiness, of not-self, this sense, even in a moment, of this release from this obsessive, exhausting, self-referencing of every experience. I mean, it takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? Have you noticed? How really, and and in those moments when it's not happening, so many people say, oh my God, it's such a relief. There's just like space to notice something else than what about me. There's lots of other things to notice too than what about me. And so there's so much energy just naturally available in the mind stream, in the physical, mental experience, when it's not all bound up in this relentless, obsessive self-referencing that naturally expresses in doing the obvious, whatever is appropriate for the welfare of beings, whatever being happens to be right in front of us. Sogni Rinpoche gives a great description of this this relentless self-referencing. He talks about how in um, Tibet, when you're going to start to construct a house, when you kind of lay the footprint, the foundation, they start from a center point and have, you know, like a, like a long rope or something, like a yardstick, and then just from the center point measure all the way around to get the circumference, you know, of the footprint for the foundation. And he said, in a way, that's the original yardstick for samsara, this original measuring point for samsara, it always starts from the sense, not the idea, but the sense of me here now. I'm the center of it. And from this felt sense, not even uh, an idea, but this felt sense of me, everything is measured in samsara. I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm seeing that person walking. This happens over there, but it's seen from this angle. You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, it just seems natural to us. And then on the occasional, or more, less occasional and more common, the more we pay attention, you start to notice the moments when it isn't all from that particular angle. It's like, oh, it doesn't have to be from that. And when it's not all measured from me, 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 there's huge other perceptions are available and appropriate response just can naturally arise. We can see the whole situation in a much clearer, more balanced way. We're still part of it, but we're not the center of everything. And all assessments aren't made by what does it mean for me. And this is just a natural effect of a moment of experience or understanding, either the the not me, self, sense, or just the natural arising and passing of phenomena, the sense of contingency, everything arising, as I said in the first talk, that yata bhuta understanding of things as they, have, as they have come to be in this moment, the effect of innumerable conditions and causes. We couldn't even list them all, right? If you want to list the causes of your sitting here now, it's endless. 
we have to go back to the Big Bang, right? It's, it's endless. And then the, the effect keeps on going out and out too. So, now why was I saying that? <laughs> anyway, um, I don't know why I was saying that. <laughs> That's right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, because we're not the center. When we look at it, it's just it's all this contingent stuff. And so when it, we're not the center, there's so many other perceptions available. And this is what maybe you know and trust this, and maybe you don't yet, and maybe you think it's not true. But my real deep faith and personal experience, as far as it goes, is that the natural result, the natural manifestation of the pure mind and heart, of the mind that's not colored by kalesa, the mind that's not seeing from the point of me, the natural response of that moment of pure mind is one of compassionate attention, natural response to what needs to be done. It's not that we have to go out and create it. It's the natural effect of seeing that it really isn't all about me. Because what is it being about me create? Wanting and fear and needing to protect and needing to prove. Well, you know the whole deal. You've been sitting here looking at it for a month. You know all too well. It's just a misperception. So on the other hand, though, the ceaselessly responsive quality of compassion this tenderness for beings, including ourselves, this natural responding to ease suffering or to do whatever's appropriate, also needs the balance of wisdom. And that compassion without wisdom, without the wisdom of equanimity, without the wisdom of no self, of, of the vastness, of the mindfulness doesn't care without the wisdom of seeing that it's not about our preferences, that's when we get lost. Either we don't have the clarity, the big enough picture to act appropriately, not that we always will anyway, but we may not have that without wisdom, or, and, that's when we drown in the suffering because I'm not big enough to hold it. And we can have an idea about wanting to help, about wanting to be present with my own suffering with others, about wanting to do good, whatever. But the idea, not supported by the wisdom of the reality of how things are, can't take us far enough. At some point, we get lost. Two ways just to describe this. One, I heard, I think I said this last year, I heard on the radio, and they were talking about the economic you know, kind of meltdown the last couple of years, and about a particular economic policy. I'm no economist, but this policy of uh, rational self-interest, well, we all know how well that's been working in terms of, you know, the banks and the stock market. But that was actually apparently a really uh, thought-out policy. And the example that was given, this is what I love, I'm assuming it's true, of a, a footbridge that was built recently in the last few years in London over the Thames, over the river. And some big footbridge, and when it was first opened with a lot of fanfare, and there were hundreds of people walking on it, and rather to the embarrassment of the builders, it was really shaking from all the people, like too many people were on it. And I guess it was kind of like tilting to one side, you know. It's not not really a great thing. And so... The people on it, each person acted, this, this was the example of rational self-interest, of trying to do the best thing, but from me, the center is me. So it was tilting to one side, so people moved to the other. But they all moved to the other. And so since everybody, all 400 people moved to the other, then, you know, the bridge just like crashed over the other way. So that's like a sense of trying to do the right thing without, but just seeing from my perspective. There's not the wisdom, there's not the, the vastness to see more accurately a bigger picture. And then the, the other way, of course, as I said, is this is from the Dalai Lama, who's saying that, and he's, you know, the, uh, 
bodhisattva of compassion, so he really knows about it. But he says real deep compassion must be derived, must arise from our insight into emptiness of inherent self. Because this is where the vast meets the profound. You need the two together. Without the unity of compassion and emptiness, we can fall into despair. So when we know from our understanding of empty of inherent self, of the fact that everything's coming and going, when we really can see, when we know that, even in a moment from our own experience, in that moment we know how much of people's suffering is avoidable, it's unnecessary. Even you know how much of your own suffering is unnecessary in that moment of wisdom and compassion. Then later when you're beating yourself up, you forgot, oh, I should know this suffering is unnecessary. Let me beat myself up for suffering, right? We forgot a little piece there. But anyway, he says, when we know that people's suffering is avoidable, our empathy for their inability to extricate themselves leads to an even more powerful compassion. But if that's not balanced with the vastness of emptiness, we really can fall into a quality of hopelessness, of despair. And can you relate to that? Or sometimes not even thinking people's suffering is avoidable, but just the vastness of how much suffering there is in this world. And when I'm trying to process all that, I can't. Really, if I think I should be able to fix it or I should be able to be here, present, in the midst of all of it without flinching away, right? It's easy to fall into despair. So you can see how the two... They naturally balance, but they are two sides of the same thing. The wisdom of not-self, of emptiness, and the ceaseless responsive quality of compassion. Both need each other for the vastness and the profound nature of them. Luckily, through our practice, they do grow together. I just want to talk a little bit about each of them and and balancing. Recently... um, I was in, in Fairfax um, early in this retreat, and I was uh, early for a, a meeting I had with somebody, so I was just hanging out in this little Tibetan, there's a little Tibetan store there. And they were playing the chant, Om Mani Padmi Hum chant. It was very peaceful and pleasant being in there, so I hung around longer in a store than I normally would. And in the back, they had lots of different statues, you know, of different Taras and Buddhas and this and that. So, you know, look, I see a million statues. I don't usually buy stuff like that at all. But this one green Tara just really spoke to me. And green Tara is one of the um, manifestations, the uh, expression of wisdom and compassion, of compassionate action, the green Tara woman, a Tibetan manifestation of compassion. So I, I just loved it. But you know, it was expensive, and I, I didn't buy it. I, I went away and thought about it. And I kept, kept coming up for a few days, so I went back and bought it. And I have it now sitting in the teacher room there. And I didn't really, I just, just liked it. I didn't think it through very much. But now I've been looking at it. I look at it every day, and I realize what I like about it. Well, what my mind's projecting into it, right? It's a statue. But what I like about it is that, to me, this particular statue really does manifest this union of this, this equanimity, the serenity of empty, emptiness, the wisdom of that, the not, and the um, capacity to respond as appropriate. So if you know the iconography, the green Tara is sitting in meditation, but one foot is resting on a lotus so that when there's some compassionate action that needs to happen, she can just stand up right away and go do it. But it's not like a, uh, like, a, like a woman sitting there all kind of, you know, leaning for, okay, is there something I can do? Let me go help. It's completely serene. Like in deep meditation, no sense at all of um, being pulled out or bothered by anything. A little bit the way Guy described Buddha Dasa last night. Really present, but everything's just coming and going in the field. And the eyes are open. So it's also not this sense of the meditation that we pull in and the world's a little bit of a bother. No separation, that's really what I get out of it. Really the deep compassion, the deep serenity and peace of emptiness with the foot out to respond when it's appropriate. But not looking for trouble either. I really like that, that sense of the balance. 
This is from Padmasambhava, quoted by the words of, from the words of my perfect teacher by Pachal Rinpoche. And um, I'm sure you've heard this before. He's talking about the view is the most important thing, the view of emptiness, of freedom, of not-self. However, do not let your actions slip in the direction of the view. If it does, you will fall into the mistaken views of demons prattling on about how goodness is empty, evil is empty. That's the same thing about falling into emptiness. It doesn't matter what I do. Good is empty, evil is empty, everything's empty. He says, don't let your actions slip in the direction of the view. But on the other hand, don't let your view slip in the direction of action. Either, or you will be caught in materialism and ideology. So does that make you crazy? Then you have to like, but if you're thinking about how to do it, forget it. It's not something we think about or figure out now, I'm not going to, I'm going to hold the view, but I've got to keep my actions into compact. No, that's just thinking. Trust in the sincerity of our motivation and trust in awareness. The clarity and the balance of these two arise naturally if we're just paying attention. Padmasambhava kept on, and this is the famous quotation. So that is why my view is higher than the sky, but my attention to my actions and their effects is finer than grains of barley flour. And that's exactly... We're cultivating the steadiness of mindful awareness, or the way Guy was, all the different ways we talk about it. When Guy was talking today about resting in the heart and just seeing what pulls out when we don't need to. That's the view of the emptiness. But our attention to our actions is so present and sensitive and careful, our actions and their effects. So if it's just the view, it doesn't matter, it's all empty, whatever I do, you just are suffering because you don't realize, even though I didn't treat you well, but that's your problem, you know. That's not the view higher than the sky. So action, respect for cause and effect, as fine as grains of barley flour. But as I said, it's, it's the natural effect of understanding of emptiness is compassion. We just a little example if you can if you can relate to this. The times when you've had moments, and I know you all do, many as Guy said, just the moment of real presence, what I would call a purity of mind, heart, nothing special. You know, maybe it's on one of those frosty mornings and you were just standing there looking at the frost, but not with clinging, just and it just brought you into a sense of I saw people standing like that when I was walking up the hill the other morning. And I could, you know, I was walking, coming back here to work, and I saw people, ah, and I felt it right away. Oh, yeah, just this. So that sense of just this, but with pure presence, right? Not wanting anything. And in those moments, you're not thinking about yourself, you're not comparing, is this moment of presence is this frost as nice as it was yesterday? Or, you know, you know, you're not, right? It doesn't make any sense. Just this. Or you're having tea, you're taking a step, and it, it, in those moments, it doesn't matter what, right? You know what I mean, I can see. In those moments, does it, can you imagine in that space doing something harmful? Could the thought even arise? Just in that moment, someone walks by, you go, oh, that, look at that jerk, let me go, you know. It just doesn't even arise. And sometimes when people say, well, they're afraid of opening to this awareness doesn't care, because then what if we do, you know, not pay attention to our actions? What if we do hurt people? This is our worry mind. That's not coming from actually trusting the experience in that moment. And this, again, is from Padmasambhava, where someone once asked him, once we've realized emptiness, does it still harm us to commit negative actions? Padmasambhava says, once you realize emptiness, it would be absurd to do anything negative. It's absurd. You can't even imagine it. The thought doesn't arise. That's actually the beauty of it. We don't have to you know, make ourselves perfect. The perfection is naturally 
part of the pure mind. We just have to learn to trust it, to recognize it more and more and more. How compassion manifests in terms of speech or action or thoughts is very different for each one of us, and that's a whole different question. There's not a particular way it should manifest. But notice those moments of peace, of clarity, and the the fact that nothing... It's absurd to even think anything negative. And how that's a different experience from a subtle kind of, you could say, kind of the near enemy of it, sort of like the near enemy of equanimity, which is, yeah, that's right, it's pretty, everything's empty, nothing matters, it's all coming and going, and it's just a little bit disconnected. It's like, I don't care. It's not so much awareness doesn't care, it's like, I don't care. I'm not here, so I don't care, and whatever happens, and I'm sorry for their suffering, too, and I'm sorry for mine, and oh, well, you know, it'll all, you know, take care in the end when the world blows up. No, that's, that's my New York mind. But you can feel the difference. You can feel the difference. It's both subtle and worlds apart, and we can start to notice it for ourselves and really trust the purity and the natural expression of it. It's not something we're creating with our personality or that we need to create or that we can create or that we need to hold on to or we need to prove we're a compassionate, good person. This is natural. Our job is just the moment-to-moment awareness that allows for the perception to clear enough to actually recognize things the way they are. And in terms of our mindfulness practice here in terms of how we live our life. It's also true that, so that was on the wisdom piece, that compassion as an intentional response of the mind, of the heart, is also developed and cultivated by the way we pay attention, by the deliberate focusing of our thoughts on, say, the compassion practice. That is shifting the intention of mind from ill will or cruelty to compassion. But here's the Dalai Lama again, talking, of course, about bodhicitta, which is kind of the the biggest kind of compassion, the the awakened or the noble heart, kinship with the suffering of all beings and that sense of of, um, the motivation to awaken in order to bring freedom to all beings, to benefit all beings. But that's basically his compassion. And when Dalai Lama is talking about how does it develop, He says it develops this empathy with beings, this deep aspect of compassion. It develops through deep insight into what suffering is. And guess how we get that? And this is still from the Dalai Lama, not me. Guess how we get that? It arises by being present with our own experience. Nowhere else. And so he says, as we open into our own experiences of suffering, he's not saying our experiences are only suffering, but when we are experiencing suffering, that, that willingness and the wisdom that gives us that willingness to be present with our own suffering, then it, the compassion, it naturally begins to deepen and compassion strengthens from just being present with our own suffering to a sense of empathy and connectedness with other beings. So it kind of moves from the personal to the universal. And I know from talking to people here and at other retreats that this is something that I know quite a few of you have have actually experienced here. It's not really that esoteric, but a sense of whatever your particular suffering could be. It could be a headache. It could be you're feeling grumpy. You know, it could be that you're hungry. It could be really strong physical pain, whatever it is. Grief, sorrow. And first we fight it. We do all the numbers of how to be mindful to make it go away, and we know all of those. And then when we finally say, okay, I'll really open to it, but still in the back, okay, if I open to it, it'll go away. Until finally there's no other option. There's nothing else you can do, and it isn't going away. And you know even if you leave, it won't go away. So then the mind just has to let go and just touch it. Just touch that heart of grief or that physical pain or the aversion in the mind or the sorrow or the grumpiness or whatever it is. And there's times when just by really opening with 
complete self-abandonment, really, surrender, tenderness into that particular suffering in whatever way it's manifesting. So often people find it's, it's, it's my story at first, my particular uh, history, my memories, my physical pain, my worry about the future, whatever it is. But as this, the awareness just continues to touch to be with it, often it just naturally moves into a sense of, oh, so many people in the world experience this. And it really moves at that moment when you've really hit compassion, when it's actually, the suffering is still there, but the state of mind that's touching it is really that beautiful state, that Brahma-vihara of compassion, where the personal, our personal dukkha, our personal suffering becomes like a representative of the universal. And really, it always is. Each of us is just a particular conglomeration representative of the universal So we have our stories, but grief is the grief of the world. Physical pain, the pain of the world. Loss, sorrow, sadness, grumpiness, whatever it is. There's nothing, really, that only I am the only person who ever suffered this. It feels like it. We can feel so alone in our suffering sometimes. That's actually a big thing about it. Once I was in the hospital for some days... You know, I was caught up in my own little story. And then I, after a few days, I kind of just started to open. I was in a room with three other elderly women. And I just, oh, look at these ladies. They're really suffering. And then I thought, how many rooms in this hospital? How many people just in this hospital? How many hospitals in this city? How many cities with how many hospitals just in this country? I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. It's mind-boggling. And so that's not to put down one's suffering, that's that opening into the suffering of the world. And this is really what I think the Dalai Lama is talking about, where the, the willingness to bear witness with courage, with kindness, to be present in the midst of our own difficulties, our own suffering, is the avenue into empathy with beings, the avenue into this depth of compassion that also Do you hear how in that is also the sense of not-self? It's not about little separate self. The compassion itself naturally opens into the sense of communion of beings, not separate individuals. And so in terms of our practice, in terms of, and I don't just mean on retreat, but we're talking about retreat, this is why the difficult times, the times when everything isn't going the way you think it ought to be going, are so important. You know, and we say that, and you, I'm sure people think, yeah, you just say that to keep us here, you know, to keep us going through another day. Oh, yeah, that's really the best time of retreat. But it's so, so important. Because whatever's arising in this moment, as I was saying before, yata bhuta, it's the effect of innumerable causes and conditions. It's arising right now, cannot be changed. We can't go back, you know, in a time machine and change the causes so this moment's different. It's here. It's over. It's this. That's like you could say the result of past actions. How our mind and heart is meeting this moment of experience right now, that's present moment action. That's the seed of present moment karma. So... The most, you know, beautiful thing could be arising, the most boring thing, the most painful, suffering, mental state or physical thing can be arising. When, just for that moment, it's met with the clear intention of, of mindfulness or compassion, just compassionate acceptance, that's what's being cultivated in the moment. So really, it's not about getting rid of or looking for trouble either, but it's not about trying to get rid of these unpleasant experiences so there's smooth sailing, and that's the proof that our practice is progressing. But how the heart-mind, how the moment of, of mind and the factors that are in it, how it meets this moment of the conditions as they arise and change and vanish, that is the path, sort of what Guy was saying last night. And so this moment of mindful presence, when we're not judging, when we're not putting anything extra on it, has a, just that quality of acceptance. It may not be what you actively feel is compassion, 
but it's this total accepting presence that can see clearly what is, that is both the expression of wisdom and compassion and also the further cultivation, the further development of wisdom and compassion. Just that ability, we can't always do it, but the willingness to surrender into this moment with clarity and without fighting. I mean, it's what we've been talking about the whole time, but so I don't have to really elaborate on what I mean. But to recognize that this is both the manifestation of wisdom and compassion and also the further development of it. And as, as Ajahn Sumedho said once, I remember years ago, he said, the suffering of our life, our normal life, is all we need to be enlightened with. And I would say it's all we need for the development of deep compassion. We don't have to think we have to save the world. I mean, it would be nice if we could. Even the Buddha couldn't save the world. We do what we do, which is our own particular path. But how this moment is being met, what's the quality of consciousness that's meeting this moment? That's really the place where all the awakening and all the confusion is happening, right here. And so really, the difficult times in retreat are so important. And we don't always get a good sign. Great, you met this moment with wisdom and compassion, good. You're that much further along. We unfortunately don't often even know. You know how you can be, and I've talked to people and I've shared that I've been in those spaces too, where you're just in some psychological, physical suffering. It seems like it's going on and on. You recognize it. You can see your mind's getting caught. You can see how it's getting caught. And it's still getting caught. And you can feel that it's caught. And you're getting aversive to it's getting caught. And you're getting despairing that it's getting caught. And then you get up and go through another day. And it started out OK, but then here it is caught again. You know, you can, and it's, you know, why am I doing this? You know. What is the purpose of this? This is insane, right? This is just spiraling downward. You feel like that. It's not. Because we get so like lost in the reaction to getting caught, and you also can't chalk up every moment of mindfulness. You don't really know how many moments there's actually mindfulness and compassion meeting it. Because it still feels lousy. You know, it's like, Great, lights, that was a moment of compassion with this being caught. Good, one score on the compassion side. Okay, three, three strokes on the getting caught side. You know, it doesn't work like that. So you're in it, 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 you're in it. Six weeks, you're in it. Who knows how long. And then, like for me, sometimes I'd come out, and you don't come out and go, oh, now I see I've burned through that one. I'm sorry, you don't. But somehow later you realize... You know what? This, this, when this comes up, it's, a lot, it's got a lot more holes in it. It's a lot more transparent. It's not catching me so much. And you can't say when that happened. But the quality of wisdom and compassion has developed so much just by that willingness to keep showing up. You know, We don't get self-confirmation because it's not about self-confirmation. It's about the abandoning of the need for self-confirmation. Oh, it's that quote from Dogen that I've already said two or three times that I love. You may not necessarily know about your own enlightenment. Because it's not a self-confirmation process. So this sense of how we pay attention. I think James said this that from the Buddha. Whatever one frequently thinks about and dwells upon will become the inclination of the mind. So when you're noticing getting caught, you're just noticing all the negative. But you're not noticing how often what the mind is dwelling upon is mindfulness, is acceptance, is really some level of compassion and wisdom, because we're so selective perception on what we don't like. Notice these others. That's what Guy was saying last night, too. And so we don't need to look for huge experiences. And it is a real exercise, well, you see how hard this practice is, an exercise in moment-to-moment trust and faith, not just on retreat, but in our whole life, 
I mean, we keep pointing you, I keep trying to point all of us to recognize these moments of intrinsic purity, of freedom, of goodness, and that compassion and love and wisdom naturally arise without our having to do it. We keep pointing to that because it really takes a great deal of faith, of confidence in the truth, in your own understanding, to keep on showing up. You see how hard it is here, and it only gets harder in our daily life where so much stuff is bombarding us, right? And so to have the confidence, okay, I just have to meet this. I don't have to fix it all. But to keep showing up and that the wisdom and compassion are continuing to develop. It takes a lot of confidence because life is sometimes so hard. And in terms of our best uh, ideas about acting in a compassionate way in the world, I would imagine without knowing everybody, just people that are dedicating their lives to awakening, to practice as you are here, basically, you know, you're pretty, pretty decent people. <laughs> you know, pretty much people that, that can spend this amount of time here. You know, you like compassion. You're, you're into love. You'd like to help people, right? It's kind of, and we, we have a deep commitment. But it's, as we see, the mind is not so tractable sometimes. And the world doesn't always go along with our plans. I don't know if you noticed that. The world tends to not behave, never mind the world, other people, tend to not behave in the way that we would like them to. And so with the best of intentions to act really to do good, to act from compassion towards ourselves, towards others, if we don't keep finding in ourselves, keep coming back to your, your motivation, your internal motivation, and the faith, the confidence that feeds it, and the wisdom that feeds it, it's just really easy to get sidetracked. So basically what I'm saying is that the compassion, co- supported by wisdom, really needs to come from the inside out. That it's a matter of our deepest motivation and intention from wisdom, rather than trying to figure out how to act, what we think should be the compassionate way to act, and then trying to do it, we have to work first, really cultivating, really seeing how the compassion comes from our understanding, from our deep inner intention. Like, I mean, we see in the world all the time where activists or people are really trying to do good, and it, they end up getting really bitter where there's so much arguing about the different views, even though both views are people that want to help, but so much attachment to views and the mental states that can get uh, fed by that are ones of anger and hatred and really fighting with each other. I mean, it can really get out there. You know, when people who are anti-abortion, so they're pro-life, right? Everyone else is anti-life, but they're pro-life. And then people who are pro-life killing doctors who perform abortion. And it's like, you know, it's, it's crazy. We can sit here and say it's crazy. But that way of, I really want to help, and getting so fastened onto the view, and missing the fact that our intention has changed, that it's not really compassion. In the moment, it's actually anger. And this is where our willingness to be present with our own suffering without blame. But it requires this level of honesty, of integrity with our experience. It's what this practice requires. It's what all of you are doing all the time. You know, we wish it were otherwise, but actually it's like this. I really, this is how I'm really feeling. That is wisdom. And so it takes this real commitment and a commitment to honesty and compassion and purifying our own heart and mind and intentions. Just read a couple of examples that really inspire me. One, uh, where Martin Luther King just says it so clearly, where he said, nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a man, you refuse to hate him. That's the level of real compassion. 
of real clarity of intention, or Do Su Chi, Yang Sung Su Chi, who said, um, she's surprised that people think she's so extraordinary because she says, I'm just very simple. I have very ordinary attitudes towards life. If I think there's something I should do in the name of justice or in the name of love, then I'll do it. The motivation is its own reward. That's kind of like the Green Tara movement. You know, you act from the clearest motivation you can, knowing that we cannot control results. We can't control how other people respond, even when we act with the clearest intention and motivation. We may not see the whole picture. Uh, and still, how do we stay open and connected? It has to come from our own understanding, our own wisdom, both of emptiness and uncontrollability, and the importance of compassion as a sense of connectedness with beings. We can't just do it as an idea. This, uh, again, really inspires me. It's coming from um, the autobiography of John Lewis, who is a congressman now from Georgia, so 20-something years he's been a congressman from Atlanta. But back in the early 60s, he was a student in Nashville, and one of the original um, students who were um, started the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and were doing the Freedom Rides and really committed to the, the nonviolent um, action for integration. And really, they were taught by a man named Jim Lawson, who had studied Gandhian principles of nonviolence. And so very, very courageous people. But this is from his autobiography, and he's talking about um, nonviolence as what it really means to him. One of the most fundamental principles of the Gandhian notion of satyagraha, nonviolent action, satyagraha really means truth force, truth force, and that's really what he's talking about, is that it is not just a technique of achieving specific goals. It's not just a tool to achieve unity and freedom in the world around us. True satyagraha, as Gandhi taught it, is about a fundamental shift inside our own souls. It's rooted in the achievement of inner unity, of inner freedom, of inner certainty. It's a place we find within ourselves, a calm, sure place. And once found, that place is not swayed or disturbed by the thousands of details of the world around us that bombard us every day. Doesn't that sound just like how Guy was talking about Ajahn Buddhadasa last night? But then he's not just talking theoretically, because as I said, he was one of the freedom riders, he was beat up often, he was really on the front lines for years of this struggle. And as he goes on, he says, this is a difficult concept to understand, it's even more difficult to internalize, but a heart that holds no malice towards the inflictors of his or her suffering has everything to do with the way of nonviolence. We're talking about love here, not romantic love, not the love of one individual for another, not loving something that is lovely to you. This is a broader, deeper, more all-encompassing love. It is a love that accepts and embraces the hateful and the hurtful. It is a love that recognizes the spark of the divine in each of us, even in those who we might call our enemy. This sense of love realizes that emotions of the moment and constantly shifting circumstances can cloud that divine spark in anyone. Pain, ugliness, and fear can cover it over, turning a person toward anger and hate. It is the ability to see through those layers of ugliness, to see further into a person than perhaps that person can see into himself that is essential to the practice of nonviolence. that level of where it it can't be an idea. It's really a transformation on a deep, deep level of our understanding of ourselves and the world. He's saying the ability to see deeper into a person. So it's not uniquely Buddhist, obviously. He's deeply Christian. But the truth doesn't have a label on it. And 
clearly this is not an easy thing. So to come back to what I was saying earlier, that we don't need to look for huge experiences to test ourselves. But moment after moment, the experiences of our life, this is where we really look. Rather than trying to be compassionate from the outside in, we start inside and let our understanding reflect in our actions. And it can be really very simple. As the Dalai Lama said, and I think James said this, to trust in the sincerity of one's pure motivation. And the world is complex, and we don't always have all the information, and we can't control results. Can we still stay open with ourselves, with the other beings, when it didn't go the way we think it should? Not get into blaming ourselves. An example that comes to my mind is if you've ever been the healthcare proxy for someone who's aging and ill and a little dementia, which I was with my siblings, with both my parents. And you have to make, even if you've talked about it with them ahead of time and you think you know all their wishes, the situation is always different, more complicated. You can't possibly go through every conceivable alternative, you know, while they still can make the decision. And then you always have to make a decision that you didn't know what it was going to be, and it always has to be in a hurry, and you have as much information as you have, but not all of it. What would they want? What would be the least suffering decision? And you make the one that you think is the most in line, but you can't, even doctors can't know, and I'm not a doctor, you can't know all the medical ramifications of what's going to come from that decision. And so often we would make a decision, and then the siblings have to agree, that's another thing, but we'd make the decision, and that wasn't too bad in my case, we would usually agree. And then there'd be some other medical thing that would happen, and the decision that seemed to be the most compassionate the least suffering, would turn into that it added two weeks of a different kind of really seemingly unbearable suffering that wouldn't have happened if you'd made a different decision. How do you stay present and open with compassion for you, with compassion for them, with compassion for the doctors, and awake in that? You know, we can't control circumstances. It's not about getting the result we want. It's about the sincerity of our motivations, our wisdom, the wisdom of emptiness, the wisdom of the conditionality of things is what gives us that vastness and strength. If it's all about me doing the kind thing, making the right decision, making it all good for somebody else, that's just not going to last very long. It's going to you know, crash and burn as soon as things don't go right, as soon as I'm in a grumpy mood when I should be doing the compassionate thing. But when it's bolstered, supported by the understanding of not-self and the vastness of emptiness and the fact that everything's just coming and going and conditions coming together and my decision is part of the conditions but not all of them, we can stay open, we can stay present or more present, you know, show up again when we go away. One of my teachers, Sayadu Utejaniya, a couple of years ago, and he's a character, he's not, like if you met him you wouldn't think, oh, like with some of the Tibetan teachers, you think, what a wonderful, compassionate, loving being. And Tejani, he's great, but he's not like that. He's like a character. That's why I like him. Um, and so a couple of years ago, he, he was supposed to come to the States and Europe and do some retreats, and he canceled everything. And it was because of some really weird political stuff that was going on in his monastery, not in Burma. Like kind of, country has horrible politics, and it, reflect sometimes on what goes on in monasteries, just so you don't get too idealistic about what can go on in monasteries. And so I don't want to go into the whole thing, but basically um, another abbot, Tejaniya is the main teacher, and his teacher, Shweyumin, who's revered in Burma, had made him be the teacher. But he wasn't the abbot. The abbot is the, is the head monk who's kind of like the organizational person. He's usually the most senior monk. It's rare that the main teacher would not be the abbot. So, of course, over years it got to be some conflict. The abbot basically wanted more power, wanted more recognition, and he just started getting really weird and doing strange things and trying to get control of the money that the lay people organize and just all kinds of weird stuff. Telling yogis they couldn't come, making them leave, and um, not letting them see Tejaniya. It was just really bizarre and really felt awful. And um, 
I wasn't staying there. I was staying somewhere else, but I'd go, just go chat with Tejani and he'd tell us what was going on. And um, this, as it got weirder and weirder, some of Tejaniya's supporters bought land nearby and, and you know, it's for him to go start another place. And I said, well, why don't you just go there? He said, well, Shweyu Min, who, I re- who he reveres, it's his, this is his place and he wants me here and I'm not just going to cede it to him. I'm not going to just abandon it as long as I can be here. But he wasn't hardly doing any teaching. He was just staying in his, in his, in his house and the other abbot was just making things really, really weird and uncomfortable and very negative and uh, bad-mouthing. All kinds of bad stuff was going on. And so the other abbot was also talking to the lay, the lay group that oversees it and the monks that oversee it, kind of senior monks, and saying all this bad stuff about Tejani. And I said, why don't you go back and tell them this other stuff that's going on, you know? And he said, no, I don't want to add more akusala to the situation. Akusala means unwholesome. He's just watching his mind. He said, I'm not going to go with an unwholesome mind and bad mouth people. I really trust whatever needs to happen will happen. And the other thing that was interesting is he's, he just loves watching his mind. He said, on the other hand, it's really interesting. This is like an exam for my mind. How does my mind deal with this, you know, with all this negativity, with all this stuff being taken away? And he said, I'm just really fascinated to see how it goes, how my mind deals. And so... You know, he, he really couldn't leave because if he left, that the other guy would take it over. And anyway, so long story short, uh, after some months when it was really getting bad, the kind of some senior overseers of the whole monastic thing, monks up in Mandalay, came down, checked the whole scene out, and they were gonna, they had the power to decide this guy or this guy. And so just going around and talking to everyone, I mean, it was obvious. So the other guy's gone, Tejani is in charge, and now he's the abbot, and the whole place is completely different. But I was really impressed by that, you know, the deep motivation. I'm not going to add more akusala to the situation. Because all I had to do was just say the truth, but go looking for people to, to put the guy down. That's not the same as passive indifference. Because when the time came and the monks came to check out what was going on, he told the truth. He wasn't just giving up. It wasn't just said, okay, never mind, I'll leave. He was staying there, but just not adding more kusala. I was quite impressed by that. And so that quality of commitment, in whatever way it shows up in our own life, it can just be little things. It doesn't have to be uh, an amazing, you know, everyone's so impressed with the compassionate work that we're doing. Sylvia tells a story of, uh, that I really like of herself some years ago. She was at some luncheon where they're all sitting at different little tables, and she was at a table with some people she didn't know. And they were just doing kind of gossip and putting down, you know, just kind of criticizing everything and putting down the other people and whatever. She was sitting there feeling uncomfortable, thinking, what should I do? Should I join in, you know, to kind of be part of things? That didn't feel right. Should I give a little rap on wise speech? <laughs> that didn't really feel like that would go over too well. So then she did, she said, okay, and this is, I love this, it's so simple. She just started talking, and as you know her, she just happens to be a very positive person anyway. She just started saying true but wholesome things. Like, oh, this chicken salad's really quite tasty, isn't it? You know, I wonder what's, you know, little simple stuff, but wholesome, wholesome and true. And she said, in not that long a time, it really changed the tenor of the conversation. I've tried that sometimes when I remember. And it's really true because basically goodness feels better. We appreciate it more. We don't even realize we're falling into negativity. That's an act of wisdom and compassion. It doesn't have to be, you know, an amazing thing. So we just show up however we show up. We don't know how it's going to turn out. It may turn out that our whole life changes from doing the obvious. One teacher calls it just doing the obvious. Of a friend who, after Katrina, he didn't have a job, he was between jobs. He thought, well, I'll just go volunteer for Habitat for Humanity for a few weeks. How long ago was that? Five years. He's still there. Habitat for Humanity hired him. He's living in New Orleans, working really hard. He doesn't like New Orleans. He's a real Boston kind of a guy. He's not a party guy. This is a party city. He goes, I'm in AA. I don't want to be partying. You know, it's not good for... But he's down there just serving and really happy to be doing it. We never know. We never know. 
So we just do the obvious. Take that little step off the lotus when there's something to presents itself to do, and when there's not, just really resting at ease in whatever arises with wisdom and compassion. So I'll just end with this one, I can find it. Oh, well, two things. One from Master Shen Yen, who was a wonderful Chan master. He just died, was that last year or the year before? And he was talking about how the sense of no-self, the understanding of no-self, transcends subject and object. But one clearly knows how to respond or behave, doing the obvious. And this is his way of saying, something arises. These are his four steps. Face it, accept it, handle it, put it down. I love that. Face it, accept it, handle it, put it down. It's over. Payment children. At the relative level, our noble heart is felt as kinship with all beings. At the absolute level, we experience it as groundlessness or open space. So let's just sit for a minute. 